Welcome to Shiloh Church. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you are in the Jacksonville, Florida area, please join us for worship or watch our services online at shiloh.church. Thank you. From Galatians chapter 6 is our text for today. Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to pray first and ask God's blessings over our time together in the Word and then... I want you to hear the reading of three verses from Galatians 6, and then you may be seated, and together we will listen for what God will say to us out of His holy word. Let's pray first. We enter your gates, Father, with thanksgiving, and we enter your courts with praise. We give thanks to you and bless your name for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness to all generations. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ today as well and above all, for he is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. And in his name we pray that you would open our minds that we make comprehend the truth of your word. We pray that you would help us to lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that we may receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Grant me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And as the seed of the word is planted and watered, we pray that you would make it grow. For your glory we pray. Amen. I want to preach today about the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and therein the reading of God's Word is this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. The law of the harvest. The most important verse of the Bible is the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I make that claim because if you believe that first verse, you won't have any problem with the rest of the verses. 
The Bible begins with a statement that declares God to be the sole and sovereign creator of the universe. The God who created the world also sustains the world. God maintains order by natural laws. One of these laws is the law of the harvest. Life is seasonal. In the spring, seed is planted in the ground. In the fall, the fruit is harvested from the ground. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 2, the B part of the verse says it this way, there is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, the Lord said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, there are times when the ground produces weeds instead of wheat. Yet the law of the harvest is immutable. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the law of the harvest. Seed time is inevitably followed by harvest time. This is true in the natural world, and our text will show us today that it is also true in the spiritual world. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that shall he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit shall to the Spirit reap from the Spirit, that is, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul teaches this principle of sowing and reaping to his readers immediately after he instructs them to care for their pastors and teachers. Verse 6 of the text says that those who are instructed in the Word should share every good thing with those who teach them. The principle of sowing and reaping indeed applies to how members of the local church should treat their spiritual leaders, but the point of this principle is much bigger than that. The point is this, you must answer to God 
for how you live your life. The law of the harvest is not about financial prosperity. It is about divine reciprocity. You must answer to God for how you live your life. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, teach us three principles to live by in light of this immutable law of the harvest. Here's the first principle. You reap what you sow. Verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that shall he also reap. This is a, an ocean of truth in just a teaspoon of words. It is a simple statement that makes a profound truth. The statement neatly divides into three significant clauses. First, there is a warning about the power of sin. Verse 7 begins, do not be deceived. The word deceived means to stray away from truth or virtue or safety. Paul says, do not do it. Do not be deceived. The Galatians to whom Paul writes were young Christians who were being deceived by false teachers. These false teachers called Judaizers preached another gospel, says chapter 1, which claimed that the performance of good works must be added to faith in Christ for salvation to be complete. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? False teachers are in the business of deception. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, Paul warns that evil men and imposters will grow Worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus warns that in the last days there will arise false Christ and false prophets who will do many signs and wonders and will lead astray, if possible, the very elect of God. Christian church must always be on guard against the deception of false teachers. But that is not the concern of the text before us. Verse 7 is a warning about self-deception. It's, it's bad enough to be deceived. It's worse to deceive yourself. But here we see in the very opening words of verse 7, the power of sin. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, says that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, and no one can understand it. This is why the worst advice anyone can give you is this, just follow your heart. The heart is deceitful, the heart is sick. The heart is beyond understanding. This is the better advice. Don't trust yourself. 
Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that will lead you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today so that no one's heart will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the spirit with which Paul begins the text. He says, do not be deceived. But after giving a warning about the power of sin, he then moves to give an affirmation about the nature of God. An affirmation about the nature of God do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The word mocked there means to turn your nose up at someone. It is the picture of speaking to one with words that reflect respect, but at the same time, there is body language that betrays the contempt of the heart. The undiscerning listener hears the words that reflect respect, but they miss the body language that betrays contempt, and they are so mocked by the words that are not meant. But Paul says you can't do that with God. God says, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, does not just look at the outward appearance. God is looking at the what? Heart. God cannot be mocked. God may let you get by, but God will never let you get away. Clarence Jordan's Cotton Patch version reads, don't let anyone pull the wool over your eyes. You can't turn your nose up at God. God is not mocked. Jude verse 18 predicts that in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their ungodly passions. Until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, people will try to mock God. No one will succeed. God is not mocked. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says, but if you will not do so, you have sinned against the Lord your God, and be sure your sin will find you out. God is not mocked. Philip Graham Riken said it well. The one who thinks he is fooling with God is only fooling himself. There is a warning about the power of sin. There is an affirmation about the nature of God. But then verse 7 concludes with a reminder about the facts of life. Here is the bottom line of the verse. The reason why 
You must not deceive yourself. The reason why God is not mocked is because whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Fruit grows after its kind. You can't plant one thing in the ground and reasonably expect to receive something else when the harvest time comes. You reap what you sow. That's the law of the harvest. It is not just that seed time is followed by harvest time. It is not just that sowing is followed by reaping. It is that you will reap only exactly and exclusively what you sow. Joel 4 verse 8 says, As I have seen, those who plant iniquity and sow trouble will reap the same. You will reap what you sow. In fact, you will reap more than what you sow. Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, God says, you sow the wind and you will reap the whirlwind. This is why you better not play with God. He says, you play in the wind, I'll send a hurricane. You will reap what you saw. This is a big statement, church. God is sovereign, and yet the sovereignty of God we find here does not eliminate human free will. God's sovereign authority operates within and through the free moral choices we make. God has established the world in such a way that you will reap what you sow. And in a real sense, the text is saying that you are determining how you want God to treat you by how you live your life. You will reap what you sow. Sow a thought reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. You reap what you sow. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The seeds planted in childhood often bear fruit in adulthood. This is all Proverbs 22, verse 6 is saying. It is saying that if you train a child to follow the ways of God, most likely that child will continue to follow the ways of God when the child becomes an adult. 
But if a child is permitted to have his own way, he will grow up to become a man who is determined to have his own way. And Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is the way of death. If you are not going God's way, you are on a dead end. is why Ephesians 6 verse 4 exhorts parents not to provoke your children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is why, young people, you must not waste your life on sin. Don't waste your life. The world really doesn't have anything to offer you. You will reap what you sow. Sin produces three things in a life. Guilt, judgment, and scars. The blood of Jesus forgives the sin and satisfies the judgment but it may not remove the scars. You reap what you sow. There's a second principle in the text. First principle is you reap what you sow. The second principle is this. Present choices have eternal consequences. Present choices have eternal consequences. Verse 8 will explain the principle stated in verse 7. Paul, what do you mean when you say you reap what you sow? It's as if Paul says in verse 8, let me explain. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one that sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The emphasis of verse 8 is on our personal accountability to God. We live in a society of victims. People seemingly refuse to take responsibility for their own behavior. Everything or everyone else is always responsible for what I did or did not do. And man-centered psychology, psychiatry, and counseling only perpetuates this and deepens the problem because it doesn't acknowledge this whole law of the harvest that you reap what you sow. So we are, we are disciplined to blame other people for what's not right in our lives. But the truth of the matter is, my past may explain me, but it doesn't excuse me before God. No other factors or people or events in life that you blame can get you out of this fact. You will reap what you sow. 
We are personally accountable to God. Listen, you cannot control what you reap after you sow. Too many of us sow sin all week longer than come to church on Sunday to pray for a crop failure. But you cannot control what you reap after you sow. But the text is saying you can control what you reap by where you sow. Verse 8 says there are only two fields in life in which you can sow, to the flesh or to the spirit. Let me ask you today, church, where are you sowing your life? Choose wisely. Because present choices result in eternal consequences. Verse 8 is a perfect parallel. On one hand, verse 8 teaches That sowing to the flesh produces corruption. Paul says in that eighth verse, for the one that sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That word flesh is used in verse 8 ethically, not literally. It is not the human body. It is the fallen human nature governed by sin. In salvation, the believer receives a new nature, but the old nature continues to war against the new nature. If you still have your Bible open, look at chapter 5 of Galatians, verse number 17, where Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Every Christian is a walking civil war. The Spirit of God is trying to lead you in one direction. The flesh is trying to lead you in another direction. And unfortunately, even though we are saved and on our way to heaven, there are times when we sow to the flesh. We live to satisfy our passions. We caress our sinful inclinations rather than crucifying them. What does it mean to sow to the flesh? John R.W. Stott wrote this. 
Every time we allow our minds to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up praying. Every time we read pornographic literature. Every time we take a risk that strains our self-control. We are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. This is why we as Christians struggle with personal holiness. We find it difficult to be holy. Can I tell you why? It's a very simple answer right here in the text. Because you can't be sowing to the flesh every day of your life and then expect to reap godliness. The Christ-like life is not the result of satisfying the flesh. You can't do what comes natural, do what you feel, follow your passions, and it leads to a Christ-like life. Only the Holy Spirit can produce Christ-likeness. The flesh can only produce what the flesh can produce. What can the flesh produce? Glad you asked. Verse 8, for the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That word corruption means death or decay or destruction or it is also used for eternal damnation. I think it is the latter meaning here, eternal damnation. I think this word corruption is meant to perfectly parallel the word eternal life at the end of the verse. What Paul is saying in this verse is that what you do doesn't just matter today and tomorrow. It matters for eternity. And if you live to satisfy your lower, baser, sinful passions, it will corrupt you. It will bring destruction. This is first the word to the unbeliever in this room. Friend, you will have to answer to God for how you have lived your life. And all of us in this room have sinned and fallen short of the goodness and glory of God. And there is nothing in us to commend ourselves to God for salvation. We all fall short. Our only hope of salvation is to run to the cross and throw ourselves on the mercy of God and trust the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that provides forgiveness from sin. But if you do not trust Christ, You will suffer eternal punishment in hell for your sins. 
But this is not just a word for the unbeliever. This is a word for the believer. Even though you are saved and on your way to heaven, your present choices has eternal consequences. Just because you saved by grace don't mean you can live any kind of way. You will still have to answer to God for how you have lived your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 says, For we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive the things that we are due for what we have done in these bodies, whether it be good or evil. When we get to heaven, we will stand before the tribunal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will make us answer for how we have lived our lives. He'll expose us before all the angels and all the redeemed saints. As I'm getting older, I'm thinking more and more about that. Because as much as I wish that would be a private meeting, kept eternally confidential, there will be big screens for all of heaven to see. He will make me answer for every choice I've made, for every compromise I've committed, every show I've watched, every book I've read, every song I've listened to. Are you being nitpicky? No, the Bible says in Matthew 12, verse 36, that on the day of judgment, men will have to answer for every idle word that we speak. That's why I'm just trying to learn to keep my mouth shut. Because we will have your present choices all have eternal consequences. If you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. This is a statement, church, about the wrath of God. But there is more than cataclysmic wrath. There is providential wrath. God doesn't have to strike you with a lightning bolt from heaven to punish you. God has set up the world so that you reap what you sow. And as a result, God doesn't have to chase us down. He can just sit back and let life catch up with us. Would you notice that in the eighth part of this verse, God is not mentioned. God is mentioned in verse 7 that he will not be mocked, but he is not mentioned here. The corruption does not come from God. This is a disturbing part of the text to me. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Underscore in your Bible the double use of the term flesh. Listen to what Paul is saying. The flesh is both the object of pleasure and the source of pain. If you live to please the flesh, one day your flesh will turn on you 
and ruin your life. You thought y'all were on the same team. But the flesh that you please, the flesh that says sleep with him, sleep with her, the flesh that says take another drink, the flesh that says take it, that same flesh will turn on you and ruin your life. We are not just punished for our sins, we are punished by our sins. The punishment for sin is sin. If you live to please the flesh, the flesh will turn on you and ruin your life. Eskimos hunt wild foxes in a unique way. They take their knives and coat it with blood and freeze it and then put a fresh coat of blood on there and then stick the knife in the ground handle first and the smell of the blood attracts the fox who comes and licks blood ravenously off the knife until he dies. The fox doesn't know that at some point he's no longer licking blood off the blade but he is now licking his own blood. The Eskimo does not kill the fox as much as the Eskimo sets up the fox to kill itself. This is how the flesh operates. For whoever sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's the bad news. There is good news. <laughs> My first amen in 20 minutes. <laughs> I said there's a perfect parallel. Verse 8, the A part says, sowing to the flesh produces corruption. The B part of verse 8 says, sowing to the spirit produces eternal life. Whoever sows to the Spirit, says Paul, will from the Spirit reap everlasting life, eternal life. The flesh is an enemy of the soul that we cannot overcome on our own. But in salvation, God the Holy Spirit immediately, permanently, and completely takes up residence in the heart of the believer, and the Holy Spirit enables us to subdue the flesh to overcome the flesh, to conquer the flesh. You still have your Bible open. Look at chapter 5 again. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? Drop down to verses 22 and 23, Paul will explain. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, watch this one, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Drop down to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit lives within us to help us to conquer the flesh, but you must sow to the Spirit. You must follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You must keep in step with the Spirit. You must be led by the Spirit. You must invest your life in those things that please the Spirit of God. And if you do, the text says, if you sow to the Spirit, you will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Just footnote here, this is an affirmation of the Trinity. Eternal life does not just come from Jesus Christ or God the Father. The text says here, the Holy Spirit gives eternal life. Eternal life here does not mean that you can win salvation by being spiritual. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, plus or minus nothing. But the evidence of true conversion is that there is in your life a willingness to submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The one that souls to the Spirit lives with assurance that you have eternal life. Eternal life is a quality of life, not merely a duration of life. It's new life, not just long life. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Life to the full, literally life overflowing. New life in Christ is so great, it takes eternity to experience it all. And the life He gives is secure. In John 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither will anyone ever snatch them out of my hands. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So let me put the question on the table again, church. Where are you sowing your life? You may build great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ alas. You may seek earthly fortune and fame. The world might be impressed by your great name, but soon the glories of this life will all be past, and only what you do for Christ will last. There are three principles in the text. The first is you reap what you sow. The second is that present choices have eternal consequences. The third principle is interesting, but it's significant. Harvest does not happen 
in a hurry. Harvest does not happen in a hurry. That's verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This ninth verse is a word of encouragement for those who do the end of verse 8. Whoever sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. But there are times where you are sowing to the Spirit and the blessing, the reward, is not evident. In fact, read uh, Psalm 73 and listen to Asaph. He says, he said, boy, I almost slipped. My foot almost slipped because I was looking at wicked people and it looked like they never have any trouble. They always full, they always happy, they always rich. And he says, when I was watching the wicked prosper, I, my, he said, my foot almost slipped. This can happen to the believer. You are sowing to the Spirit. You are living for God. You are doing what you know God would have you to do, and you, you don't see the fruit. Paul reminds us. Harvest doesn't happen in a hurry. You plant the seed, but you can't go out the next day trying to bring in the harvest. It takes days of sunshine and nights of rainfall before you see anything even break ground, much less bring in the harvest. We live in a me-centered society that is governed by two principles. I want it all and I want it now. And we try to squeeze God into that mold, but, but God doesn't operate like that. Harvest doesn't happen in a hurry. What do you do in the meantime? That's what verse 9 answers. First, there is a constant temptation that you must resist and do not grow weary of doing good. Verses, uh, rather, chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians are filled with commands about how to live out the life of grace. But now in verse number 9, Christian duty is summarized in two words, doing good. Verse 10 commands, so then... As you have the opportunity, do good to everyone. Do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Verse 10 is a command, but verse 9, however, does not command us to do good. It assumes that if you are a true Christian, your life will be characterized by doing good for other people. Real Christians are do-gooders. Paul says there's a temptation because you can be doing good for others, showing love to others, showing kindness to others, 
and you keep doing it, you keep loving, you keep forgiving, you keep sacrificing, and, and one day you get to the end of the field and say, what have I gotten out of this? And you grow weary. There are two things I wanted to say that I didn't know where to put in the manuscript, but um, can I just pull over and say them? On one end, if I get lost, y'all remind me where I was. I think this text presents one of the difficulties of true relationships, meaningful relationships, deep relationships. The challenge of this passage is that when you love people, you try to intervene to prevent them from reaping what they sow. And God just doesn't let it happen. Because sometimes the prodigal will not learn until he gets to the far country and loses everything. It's not an easy thing to say, but it's the truth. Another thing, and I don't know where it fits, but I just want to say it, is that sometimes we get discouraged because you don't all, you reap what you sow, but you don't always reap where you sow. Just because you have done good by a person, we think that that person is supposed to reciprocate. That this is how God will let me reap. I I, I did you one, you do me one. And then we get our hearts broken when the people you sacrifice to help don't respond in kind. But, But the Bible says you reap what you sow, not where you sow. That's why if you're really going to do good, you got to help people, but trust God. Because you can do good to others and they never acknowledge it. But God will raise up somebody from an unexpected place. I wish I had help here. In, in fact, God, God can even I don't need no help. I can testify to it. God can even use people that don't like you to be a blessing to you. And you wonder, they don't even like me. Why are they doing this? It's because God won't forget when people forget. When you don't factor these kinds of things in, you get weary. I think I made it back now. The text is saying that while you may get weary while doing good, don't grow weary of doing good. Friend, whatever happens, keep doing what you know is right. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
So there is a constant temptation that you must resist. How do you do that? The text says there's a key truth you must believe. It's the middle clause. In due season, we will reap. If you want to underline something, underline those three words. We will reap. That's a guarantee. Uh, the sun may be hot, but listen what Paul is saying. Hold on, harvest is coming. The sun may be hot, but harvest is coming. The burden may be heavy, but harvest is coming. The soil may be uncooperative, but harvest is coming. The seed may seem powerless, but harvest is coming. The grass may look greener on the other side of the fence, but harvest is coming. We will reap. If I have an HB, I can't get excited about that. What I want to know is when. <laughs> the text says when. Did you miss it? In due season. God's timing is perfect. And he knows how to send the harvest in due season. If I could be technical for just a moment, due season, the, the, the Greek there is kairos. There are two Greek words for time, chronos, where we get our word chronology, the passing of times, seconds, minutes, hours, time in general. But kairos is not time in general. It's a set time, the proper time, the right time. God will send the harvest at the right time. I thought you'd be more excited about that. You see, the person that does not know God lives with four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. But the person that trusts in the Lord has got a fifth season. It's a due season. And you can't put due season in the calendar because any time of year when God says it's the right time, he can send due season into your life. I thought I'd have a witness there. I'm glad I brought my own just in case. Isaiah 40 verses 28 through 31 says, Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord the, the, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint nor get weary. He gives power to the weak, and to those that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. 
They will walk and not faint. One more clause and I'm finished. There is a constant temptation you must resist. Do not grow weary of doing good. There is a key truth you must believe. We shall reap in due season. Then verse 9 says, finally, there's a crucial test you must face. Verse 9 closes with the before you can get your shout in good, it closes with a conditional statement. If you do not give up. I mean, the previous clause says it's guaranteed. We shall reap. But then Paul says, not so fast. There's a test. If we do not give up. This is a condition that determines whether or not all the good you have done will ultimately pay off. It's called the perseverance of the saints. Paul says there's only one thing that can stop the child of God from reaping the harvest God has for you. You. You can give up too soon. We looking up, saying, I wonder when God is going to show up. And God's looking down saying, I wonder if they're going to show up when I show up. <laughs> the thing that will keep you from reaping the harvest is if you abandon the field before the harvest comes. Let me turn that another way for you to think about it another way. Think of what he does not say. Listen, satanic opposition cannot stop the harvest. Difficult circumstances cannot stop the harvest. Painful experiences cannot stop the harvest. Inadequate resources cannot stop the harvest. Mean people cannot stop the harvest. Vicious lies cannot stop the harvest. Watch this. Personal failure can't stop the harvest. The only thing that can stop the harvest is if you give up. Lose heart. And walk away from the field that God has assigned to you. My daddy was a storytelling preacher. He would save his illustrations to the end of the sermon to summarize everything he said in the sermon, and he would introduce this closing illustration by saying, church, if you forget my message, keep my story. And he used to tell the story of a father and son who were sharecroppers at a field in the lowlands, but often when the rains fall, fell, flood waters would rise and wipe away the crop. When it happened again, the son said to his father, no fruit can grow here. 
and I can't stay here with you any longer. I've got to leave. But the old man who believed in God said, stay in here with me a little longer and let's see what the Lord will do. And over the course of those days, little did they know that the owner of the land had come to visit check on this property, and he's looking down from the hillside and sees that land where the father and son operated. And after seeing it, he says to his man, there's no way they can get anything done down there. I want you to go down there and swap out that land and put them on the hill. That's the story my daddy would tell. That was it. He would tell the story to make the point that God sits high, but he looks low. And if you'll just be faithful to where he assigned you, God knows when to move, God knows where to move, and God knows how to move. He can take you from the lowland to the hilltop. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these are found, my hope, my aim is higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. No higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I'm finished. God be praised for his word. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For contact information, ministry updates, as well as our live Sunday morning broadcast please visit us online at shallow.church. Thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.